Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, March 10th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, this week, Fox News host Tucker Carlson aired his version of the events of January 6th based on thousands of hours of video provided to him exclusively by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. That led to an outcry among Democrats and even some Republicans who said Carlson created an alternative and false narrative of the day's events. And Senator Chuck Schumer called on Fox to stop the broadcasts. Also, the kidnapping and murder of Americans in Mexico has led to renewed calls for the Biden administration to declare Mexican drug cartels terrorist organizations and for a military response. And in Iowa, Florida governor and potential GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is scheduled to be in the state today. Trump visits next week, and Senator Joe Manchin says don't rule him out as a possible contender. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics co-founder and president Tom Bevan, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and culture editor of the Federalist website, Emily Jashinsky. So, Tom, let's start with Tucker and this decision by Kevin McCarthy to provide him and him alone with access to all this footage collected by the House January 6th committee. Both Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell condemned Fox for airing it. Uh, McConnell said on Tuesday, it was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. So how do you see it? And how do you see McCarthy's decision to release the footage only to Tucker Carlson? Well, thank goodness he did, because we're actually getting to see, uh, we've talked about this before. I mean, thank goodness we're getting to see the other side of the story. There's more to this than we were led to believe. And I just, this idea that giving the footage to Tucker, he's somehow going to, going to, you know, take it out of context or manipulate it. Okay, fine. But that's exactly what Democrats and the media did for two straight years. And nobody gave a shit about it until now. The media didn't care to see these tapes until they gave them to Tucker. Uh, They just took what the, what the January 6th committee was putting out, which we learned now from Benny Thompson that he he doesn't even know if his staff saw it. He certainly didn't see it. So who was putting together that footage? Oh, it was the media. It was the people they had hired from, you know, producers, former producers and, and people who were actual documentary media. makers. Yes, exactly. So they created this narrative to which there was no counter narrative, no transparency about any of this stuff for two and a half years. And so thank goodness he released that footage. Look, in a perfect world, we would have the public would have had access to all this footage from the from the beginning, um, and we would have been able to see the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever, so that we could make a decision. But to only be fed one side of the story for two and a half years, and then suddenly this this selective outrage is just it is maddening to me. It is absolutely maddening, and this idea that oh this is somehow going to affect national security. And to have Chuck Schumer step up and say that Rupert Murdoch needs to take Tucker Carlson off the air. I mean, this is insanity. I mean, this is the United States of America and you have not some backbencher, not some quack, the majority leader of the United States Senate advocating for full-on media censorship because he doesn't like Tucker Carlson's political views. All the rest of it is just is just window dressing and noise. I mean, this is a, it's a big deal. And I am thankful that we're getting to see some of this, getting to see more of it, and there's finally some transparency. Well, Carl, just for the for the record, I th- I think what Schumer said was the he was saying Rupert Murdoch should take 
him off the air. He wasn't saying that the U.S. government should get involved or something like that. So nuanced position. But Carl, what do you think? That's a distinction without a difference. I'm with Tom on this. He's got no business telling Murdoch anything. And neither does Mitch McConnell. It's journalism. Wait a minute. Why are they not entitled to an opinion on this? Because there's a, a threat of, of coercion. They're the government. They can Look, they can say anything they want. I think they ought to be denounced for it. That's my point. What does Chuck Schumer know about the press? What does he know about freedom of the press? Uh, yesterday, in another hearing on the other side of the Capitol, the Democrats, all they seem to know want to know from Matt Taibbi about the Twitter files was who his sources were. Well, we, we, we actually know who his source was. It was Elon Musk. <laughs> but but I, I can't say this enough times, and you guys are probably sick of hearing it, but for the Democrats to be the party that no longer believes in the First Amendment, doesn't believe in freedom of, of the press, doesn't believe in the free exchange of ideas, doesn't believe in the marketplace of ideas, doesn't be in an open, robust debate, that's not going to wear well. That's in Communist Manifesto. That's from the Soviet Union. That's from any totalitarian government you can name, right or left. That's not America. It is really offensive to me, and it should be offensive to them. These guys ought to wake up and think, what did I just say? Tucker Carlson has a right. He's presented, as Tom pointed out, he's presenting a side of the story that hasn't been presented yet. I don't happen to agree with Tucker Carlson's take on this. I'm, a, I'm with Liz Cheney on that thing. <laughs> you know, these, these guys go there and chant, hang Mike Pence. They're trying to bully the, the Congress into not, you know, accepting the Electoral College. It was completely wrong in every respect. What Tucker Carlson's doing is saying there was more to this demonstration than you've heard. These guys who've been demonized as terrorists, been given long prison sentences. He's he's painting a portrait that they couldn't have really known they were in jeopardy, that some of them might not have even known they were breaking the law. And he's shown footage of this guy, that goofball from Arizona with the Viking helmet, uh, walking with Capitol Hill police officers who were saying that they had, they were trying to, you know, keep the situation calm. And Tucker Carlson's also done something else. He's pointed out one officer who fought with the, some of the demonstrators had a stroke and died. Four others took their own lives in subsequent days and weeks who were there that day. A couple of the suicides, the families have never talked about it. They seem to have had other problems. It had nothing to do with the riot. But but Merrick Garland is the attorney general of the United States. He's out there saying five officers were killed that day. Tucker Carlson says, that's a lie. That's untrue. We're going to take that off there. What kind of country where we live in, where the attorney general can say something that's patently not true. And when a journalist points this out, the, the leader of the United States Senate says he ought to be taken off the air. Does that sound like America to you? Or does that sound like early Soviet <laughs> Russia? Andy? All right. All right. Well, Emily, I'm turning to you to try to get us off the soapbox here for just a second. <laughs> Let's talk about the politics of this. I mean, what about this decision by McCarthy, first of all, to release this exclusively to Tucker Carlson? What do you make of that decision? And RCP had it on, so I'll talk about it, but it was on The View, which I usually don't take very seriously. But since RCP put the clip up, uh, Whoopi Goldberg is saying basically that this should be illegal because it's in essence a recruitment video for right-wing extremists. A beautiful sentiment from Whoopi. Um, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> I, I would say, starting on the first question um, in regards to Kevin McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy and, and Tucker Carlson are not ideologically aligned. They're not political allies, um, except for the sense that they're both sort of right of center. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is not somebody that 
Tucker Carlson has championed. Um, I don't think he said a whole lot of kind words for Kevin McCarthy, but I remember talking to Kevin McCarthy back in September about the January 6th committee in particular. And one of the things he mentions is actually how he's been able to consolidate support which might sound laughable given how many ballots it took for him to actually win the speakership. But the the fact of the matter is he did, uh, even being a young gun, former Paul Ryan or still Paul Ryan friend and ally. Um, the way he did that is because his caucus was his conference, I should say, was so motivated and so united by the January 6th committee's abject partisanship. And obviously something we've seen over the course of the last two years is that January 6th is very personal uh, to a lot of members of the House and Senate who were felt, I think rightfully so, like their lives were at stake that day and do have real questions about it, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, those questions differ. But the, the memories of that day are really strong and bitter. And Kevin McCarthy, I think, gives the tapes over to Tucker Carlson because he knows that these questions about January 6th, the January 6th committee in particular, um, taking the air of moral superiority and selling what they sold to the public and to the national media, the media swallowing it whole cloth with barely any questions asked is one of the things that uh, not only unites his conference, um, but is of, of interest to a lot of Republican voters. And so he has, you know, very thin margin in the House of Representatives and a, a good way to maybe curry some favor with people who wouldn't otherwise be favorable to him or whose, whose favorability to him might be thin is to give Tucker Carlson this footage. I think it's a very powerful political move on McCarthy's behalf. And Whoopi Goldberg in general, I think is reflecting the sentiments that a lot of people have increasingly, which is we need to be, the, the masses need to be protected from information that challenges the narrative that uh, the, the sort of network works are putting out. I mean, the the January 6th committee actually hired, speaking of ABC, an ABC news producer to produce the hearings for television. Um, And that safetyism mentality that the public can't be trusted with real information to the point where it should even be illegal to give it to them. In a perfect world, as Tom said, I think the public would have access to a lot of these, a lot of these tapes, everything that's safe. I think the public should be able to make up its own mind about it. But uh, that's very, very, very troubling to hear not just from the Senate majority leader, but then to hear it repeated on the airwaves of major networks. I know we dismiss these people as like celebrity cranks. um, And a lot of times that's appropriate, but saying it should be illegal. That's a serious escalation that I don't even want to just like shrug off. I mean, it's just crazy. Can I just add one, one quick thing here, which is, you know, the Republicans only won the house by a very slim margin, as Emily mentioned, had they not won the house, none of this stuff would be coming to light. None of it. Not about COVID, stuff that's come out just recently by the hearings on the House. Carl mentioned the Matt Taibbi, the Twitter files, all that stuff. This is why I think divided government matters because you actually do have now some oversight, particularly in the the tribal environment that we are in and have been in for the last, I don't know, four, five, six years. Um, when one party controls all the levers of government and are able to orchestrate things the way that the Democrats have, it's actually good to have divided government and have some competing uh, narratives out there and some some sunlight to do a little disinfecting. Yeah, we haven't even gotten to the laptop yet. Carl, you're, you're for this uh, disinfected, as, as Tom puts it. I said this last week. Uh, the surprising thing, I think historians are going to look back in this 
And I think it was sort of idiosyncratic that the new Speaker of the House gave this, this all this footage to one journalist. But as far as we know, he's the only journalist who asked for it. I mean, that's to me, that's the more important story. When I first got to Washington, every major news organization, when they found out there was footage like this, would have asked to see it on their own. They would have made their own judgment. They wouldn't have just been spoon-fed a narrative. And, and we, you know, we use that word narrative. People have different words for it, you know, the establishment or the narrative. There's a, he's a, he's a man from the left, um, Freddie DeBoers, and he, he calls it the maw, uh, M-A-W, the maw. And he describes it this way. The maw is, broadly speaking, the expression of the culture war as operationalized by the consensus opinions of media. The maw is the aggregate of opinions of paid up journalists and writers and pundits, and specifically the opinions they will allow. When a big story breaks, there's initial feeling out period where the media talks to itself and decides what the consensus opinion will be. As time has gone on, this process has got faster and faster so that now the media consensus and the expectation that all decent people will glom onto it develop in a matter of minutes. Now, with January 6th, it took more than minutes. It took days, but you're not allowed to challenge this. And Tucker Carlson is challenging it. That's what makes journalists journalists. That's what makes for a robust public debate on all questions, not just these idiots who had stormed the Capitol, but in every major public policy issue. Tom just pointed something out. If the Republicans don't take the ta- to take the House, what I wouldn't even know that the head of the CDC, the, the, the guy who was the head of the CDC when COVID hit, says that it was it came from a lab. Not just that it came from a lab, not that it was a lab leak necessarily, uh, that, that it was human engineered. And he's come to this from the science. He's looked at this and he thought all along that because of how fast it spread, convinced him it didn't come from nature, that other viruses from nature don't spread that way, that this thing was engineered by human beings to attack human beings, then was then got out accidentally. I wouldn't even know that if Kevin McCarthy, if the, if the Republicans hadn't managed to hold on by four or five seats. What what was it, Emily? Is that how big their margin is? Yeah, because we wouldn't have had this hearing. This guy was silenced. He, he was marginalized in the administration. He doesn't think that Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, who he doesn't criticize in a personal way, he thinks their view was that we needed a consensus of the scientific community. He didn't want to alienate the Chinese. He didn't want to alienate anybody. They needed the maw. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, they needed. The, well, yeah, I, I don't necessarily agree with it, but I'm, I'm saying we don't need to personalize these things or demonize people. But he, here was the most obvious theory, this institute of virology where they're screwing around with viruses. And you were called a racist and conspiracy theory and a nut and deep platform if you even mentioned it. The head of the CDC was one of those. Why do I know this? Because the Republicans had a hearing and it finally came out three years later. Carl's our resident Fauci apologist. And I just want to say uh, that that what we also learned was that, you know, these other two doctors, scientists sent him emails immediately afterwards saying that they thought it was a lab leak. And, you know, 48 hours later, after a conference call with Fauci, the allegation is that they received, you know, $9 million in funding for their projects after the fact and turn around and, and change their tune 180 degrees. So again, it's too bad that it has to happen two years after the fact, three years after the fact that we're actually now, uh, you know, looking sort of critically at, at claims that were made and allowing competing claims to be entertained when the maw, as Carl mentioned, the immediate conclusion of the maw 
was that it was absolutely a you know natural transmission. It was a wet market, whatever. And anybody who thought anything different was to be silenced and smeared. You know, epidemiologists from Harvard and Stanford and and you know places like that who had impeccable records on this kind of stuff were absolutely dragged through the mud and shunned and you know they tried to get their livelihoods taken away i mean it's just, it was despicable what happened so i'm glad it's happening it's too bad it has to happen you know 3 years too late well emily let's talk about mexico um for a minute you had four americans kidnapped at the border two were tortured two were murdered allegedly by uh, mexican drug cartels americans were as near as we can tell completely innocent but this has put a spotlight on the power of these cartels have and how dangerous they are uh lindsey graham uh wants to declare war uh, what do you think uh, Biden will do here? <laughs> Tom is right. Yes, I'm I'm stunned that Lindsey Graham is calling for an AUMF um, now to deal with the Mexican cartels. And, th- you know, that's one of those things where uh, Lindsey Graham, I think, has has been very trigger happy with those AO- AUMFs over the years. So I'm not sure he's Tell everyone what an AUMF is. The authorized use of, of military force, uh, which is how we get around declaring war. Um, but <laughs> it's it's over the over the years, Lindsey Graham, I think, has not proven himself, and people in that same camp have not proven themselves to be responsible uh, users of the AUMF. And even Lindsey Graham himself has looked back on his vote uh, during the Iraq War for the Iraq War, the AUMF for Iraq, um, to say that he probably wouldn't do it again. Uh, so maybe that sense of introspection is good going forward. Uh, but the fact fact of the matter is this situation has been festering in Mexico for years and years and years and years. And the American political establishment has done virtually nothing to stop it. So to turn around now and say, after we have failed to act because our Congress can't function and because our presidents are just flinging executive orders around like there's no tomorrow, we're going to turn violent on this country. Now, Mexico has not cooperated with us to the extent that it, it should should have over a very long period of time. Um, it's not to say we didn't do anything to, to aid the destabilization of Mexico, but the Mexican government is corrupt. It's a failed state. It's on our border. I fully understand uh, why people are trigger happy uh, with the cartels and with the AUMF. But I remember I was in Matamoros and Tamaulipas about nine months ago, um, exactly where these kidnappings took place, talking to a pastor on a reporting trip who runs a shelter for migrants. And he said, for years, we have been sitting down with the American government every single month and asking them to put out, and this is his quote, in plain Spanish, in plain Spanish, a message that says, do not come, you will not get in. And they don't do it. And they never have. And we have no idea why. Um, And that is because the American political establishment is too cowardly to actually do anything um, that would create a more humane system of asylum and humanitarian assistance from the perspective of the United States. Instead, what our our patchwork Byzantine immigration policy has done is create the cartels, essentially, because people know that if they pay cartels to go up through Mexico, they will have a good chance. The cartels will be able to shepherd them across the Rio Grande. The cartels will protect them uh, while they wait to turn themselves into American border patrol. And to hear that from uh, Lindsey Graham, I might be wrong on this, who was a member of the Gang of Eight, um, which I think 
you know, there's debate as to whether that would have made the situation better or worse. Um, But to to see that, I think, is a really sad reflection on where we are as a country. And the real losers in all of this are the migrants who uh, will continue to be, you know, uh, in violent, dangerous situations uh, because we will just continue to uh, embolden the cartels. Now, I don't know what an AUMF would look like with cartels. I'm curious for the debate. I'm ready for the debate to happen. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong on this. and I'd love to see great points to the contrary. But I don't have a whole lot of faith in our military at the moment. Carl, just to the politics of this for a minute, wouldn't this be a winner for Biden if he actually took some action and blew up a couple of cartel headquarters? That's interesting the way you asked that, Andy. It would be a winner for Joe Biden to take some action on the border. I, I don't think this is the action that would play well in his own party. It certainly wouldn't play well in Mexico. Last month, 21 attorney generals, attorneys general, you're supposed to say, of the state's sent a letter to the White House that copied the uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, saying that these the Mexican drug cartel, cartels should be designated as terrorist groups. And that has that unleashes all sort of legalese that we can, the military and our law enforcement can do things um, that they don't think they can do now. The position of the Mexican government is that that's really an attack on their sovereignty. So, and I, I agree with that. And I, I think it wouldn't play well with Mexico or in Latin America. I think it would make America look heavy-handed, and it would draw attention necessarily to the things Emily's talking about, all the things we haven't done that we can do now, legally, um, basic, easy things. And some, and some of them are not basic or easy. They're hard, but, but that we haven't been doing. But when the cartels went in the business, you know, they were dealing drugs. Now they're dealing people. And drugs. It's a problem. And uh, I mean- Well, the, but, but this, is, this is the kind of thing that gives you, that gives you pause. So- Peter Ducey, he asked, uh, he asked this puckish question. He asked it, it, the White House press secretary. And she said, uh, she said, oh, fentanyl's historic lows. Fentanyl's not a problem because of what Biden's done. Fentanyl, historic. She used that word three or four times. I'm not sure she knows what it means. <laughs> Histor- <laughs> Histor- fentanyl deaths are historically high in this country. There, there's never been anything like it. N- never. Any drug killed as many Americans as this drug kills every year, ever. There's, it's, it's unprecedented. The medical professionals don't know what to do. Local law enforcement doesn't know what to do. It's it's a national crisis. Hundred thousand deaths from overdose drugs. Two thirds of them uh, from o- opiates, synthetic opiates. Most of those fentanyl. The technology and drugs and, and chemicals come from China. They're manufactured in Me- Mexico and they're brought here. And so interdiction was up last year. I suppose that's what she meant. But deaths are up. The fentanyl is plentiful. It's everywhere. It's in high schools. Kids were killed in Arlington, Virginia, where I live, they don't even know they're taking it. It's being cut with all kinds of drugs. It's, it's a national crisis. And so this, for this white house spokesman, I've never heard a white house spokesman say anything like that before. Completely at odds with the facts and really cold hearted. And, and, and it must've been a, if if you had a kid who died of this, you, you must, your blood must've run cold. So you have this clueless administration. Yeah. They need to deal with it. Do they need to do this? Why don't they do a hundred things before they do this? And why make why make the Mexican government an adversary? Why not work with them? Tom, you a, you a dove on the cartels? You're pro cartel here. <laughs> I'm the I'm the pro cartel. Now listen, uh, well I I do think the administration has um, they just haven't handled immigration well at all from the beginning. It has been a mix of incompetence and gaslighting and and just absolute uh, neglect, really, 
um, all the way through from the day that he took office and started denying that there was a crisis at the border and then, you know, sending Kamala Harris to somewhere near the border in El Paso. You know, he's had these policies going back and forth, Title 42 they've tried to get rid of, and now he's done some things that have made some members of his his base unhappy by reinstating some of Trump's immigration policy. So, gosh, it would be nice if we had a Congress that could actually make laws on this. And But it, it never happens. It's like the Middle East. There are certain problems that are just intractable, like decades go by and nobody can solve them. And this is one of them. Even though you know, you would think that the impulse in Congress has always been, well, we've got to, you know, we've got to pass. It's got to be comprehensive. We can't do one without the other. We can't do, it's got to all be together. And it's just like, it's a, it's a piece of food that can't fit down Congress's throat. It's too big, you know, so take little bites, right. And try and chew them up and digest them. Uh, but we can't even seem to do that for fear of angering one, one person or another. So I think we're stuck. I, is, is, Declaring war against Mexico and the cartels, is that the answer? I don't think so. I agree with Carl and Emily. There's probably a lot you can do short of declaring war. But certainly the cartels are have been empowered over the last couple of years, particularly during the Biden administration. I mean, they're just absolutely raking in the cash, transporting people and drugs, as Carl mentioned. And, and they seem to you know, I lived in Mexico for, for a while, um, in Mexico City, and it is, it's a, it's a deeply corrupt state and the cartels have an enormous amount of power, probably more now than they have had in a very long time. We never seem to get the kind of assistance we need from, from the Mexican government, I think in part because they're just not strong enough to do it. I mean, some of these, these cartels absolutely run all these towns. You see these stories any law enforcement who tries to stand up to them, they end up assassinated on the side of the road. I mean, they just, they're be almost beyond the scope of the law in Mexico. And it makes it very, very difficult for, for them and for us to get a handle on what's going on there. Yeah. So Emily, you know, I'll just try this one more time because I'm amazed at how pro-cartel all three of you are, although <laughs> I respect you all. As, <laughs> Andy, why don't you just say yeah. what you think? I think that- um, Tactical if, nuke in Tijuana- we do go after terrorist organizations. We don't always assume when we do a hit in the Middle East that that's somehow attacking the government that domiciles the terrorist group. We also don't notify them necessarily when we send in a, a drone or something like that. And it does seem to me that the cartels, if they are terrorist organizations, if they're killing more Americans today than any known terrorist group, to, to classify them as terrorist groups and take some sort of military action against them, I do think it would be a winner for the Biden administration. I would think it would show that he's serious about at least doing something. I think it would be popular with the American people. And I, I think it may happen. Andy, have you ever heard the phrase, remember the main? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we attacked a foreign country, took Cuba from it, because the, this USS Maine was supposedly attacked. Uh, it wasn't. It was, we think now, a boiler explosion. Four Americans got kidnapped in Matamoros, and that was a grisly and terrible thing. Two of them were tortured, two of them were murdered. It appears to be a case of mistaken identity. To risk a war or to risk escalating it, this, this drug problem into a military operation over that, to me, it, it, it reminds me of, remember the main, remember Matamoros. When you say a war, a war with who? I mean, what do you think, the Mexicans would somehow invade Texas? No, I, I you know, and look, there are there are citizens in Mexico who are victims of the cartel. There are certain in Mexico who, who would welcome this. 
But I just don't, you, I think, you know, the lessons of Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, we've learned, this country never seems to learn. Other people respect their own sovereignty more than we seem to. And that's just a lesson I think we ought to take seriously. Mexico is a, is a, is a proud nation. It's a troubled nation, but I don't. I don't think we ought to be cavalier about about that. In all seriousness, I was going to say Emily's the culture editor, so I'll make a cultural reference. It sounds like Andy, you want. <laughs> it's like the movie Sicario. It's a really good movie. Benicio del Toro, Josh Brolin, Emily Blunt. They're running sort of black ops into into Mexico to try and deal with the cartels and and you know stop the flow of drugs, and they're basically sort of using whatever methods <laughs> they want. So Wegman and I just watched it. Um, I, I hadn't seen it before and I thought it was fantastic. It's great. But it, and it is like, it, we are doing military style operations in Mexico and we have been, um, and maybe an escalation in that type of military intervention, which I generally am, am not super supportive of, um, especially in recent years, uh, when we look at how it's, it's failed in so many different ways. Uh, although what was it in Howard Hunt's memoir? He says, you know, maybe we wouldn't be losing Iraq if we still had a powerful CIA. So maybe there's an argument to be made there. Um, but I think, you know, we have really failed in so many different ways um, with our own immigration policy. The Mexican government has failed too. There's no question about it. Um, they have not been the best partners. But when we look at the fact that we're even having a debate about whether these cartels are terrorist um, organizations on our own border as opposed to around the world, I think this would have been a, a really great conversation to have in 2005, in 2004. I think it would have been a really different conversation if the United States military um, could be, you know, and, and our generals, our top brass could be trusted to execute something like this in a way that would be effective. But I mean, I don't know that the appetite is there in the public. The, the appetite to crush the cartels and, and close the border definitely exists among the public. I think that's why we saw Joe Biden make his trip in January where he did the joint presser with AMLO and uh, toured a completely cleaned up version of El Paso, which was sickening to watch what happened with that trip. Not entirely unsurprising, but I think he knows that there's something there. Um, but even so, the policies that he announced on that trip in conjunction with that trip are just shifting more immigration to humanitarian patrol. So humanitarian patrol, so that his numbers are super, superficially look different, even though we are still letting people in when they turn themselves in for the most part. Well, I want to talk about a different invasion then just for the moment. That's uh, Ron DeSantis <laughs> invading <laughs> Iowa. Uh, he's scheduled to be in a book event there today. He's in Davenport, I think it is. And his book is called The Courage to be Free. Carl, it's hard to imagine at this point he isn't running. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is participating with him in these events. Next Tuesday, he does his State of the State address, um, which is a, another big deal, at least down in Florida. What's going on with Ron DeSantis? And is he running? And we should just be ready for that at this point. It's pretty clear that he is running uh, to me. The, the, you've got the field is starting to take shape. Uh, Mike, Mike Pompeo hasn't announced yet, but he keeps giving interviews to uh, Phil Wegman of our staff <laughs> talking about what he's going to do when he's president. So uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating only slightly. Uh, N Nikki Haley's uh, in, she's announced. Um, but, you know, the 800 pound gorilla is still Donald Trump. Don't forget about Marianne Williamson. She's in too. Isn't she on the other side? Oh, yeah. I'm going to forget about her as soon as this <laughs> podcast is over. Thank you very much. So you got, so it feels starting to take shape, but boy, it, it, it's eerily like it was in 2015 at this time, right? Trump 
is way up there in the polls. And so far, DeSantis is not making a dent. The Atlantic Monthly had a story the other day, interviewed all these Republicans. How, what's their plan for getting Trump to go away? Oh, he'll die. You know, look, that's a great plan. <laughs> he doesn't eat right. He doesn't exercise, I said before, but he, he looks pretty robust to be. And so, you know, somebody's going to have to beat him. And the same thing is take, it's, it's similar. He's ahead early. He's doing this thing where he's calling everybody names. Uh, some of them stick, some of them don't. This field is is going to get larger. And every time one more person gets in, that helps Donald Trump more. It's going to take somebody to beat him. What's left of the Republican establishment hopes is that I think Ron DeSantis is that guy. Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. I think there's this idea. But, th- but then here, does the math work out, right? Did they get into a situation back in 2015, 2016, where everyone, including Republican voters, believed it was unthinkable that Donald Trump would win the nomination, let alone make it to Iowa, make it to New Hampshire, make it past the first couple of debates. And then everyone still kept saying something is going to happen. He this, this cannot continue. There's just no way it actually goes through. And because the vote was so split, I mean, most Republican voters in 2016 voted against Donald Trump because they voted for everybody from Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio to John Kasich, um, which at that time is a vote against Donald Trump. Uh, there, there there weren't a whole lot of, you know, if you were voting for Donald Trump in the Republican primary, you were voting for Donald Trump. If you weren't, you were voting against Donald Trump, just with a different flavor. Um, and so whether that happens for Republicans again this time, I mean, I think Donald Trump realizes he has about 30% of the Republican electorate shored up. That's his base. It may be a little bigger, it may be a little smaller. Um, but that's, and that's why DeSantis is seen as a powerful threat, because he's the one people say can kind of pick off the Trump voter um, and also appeal to the non-Trump voter. You know, maybe that person that voted for Kasich uh, or Rubio uh, will will vote uh, with that person who voted for Trump, but it just didn't like the tweeting, was a little sick of the fact that he lost and whined about it in 2020. And it's just kind of over the drama. If you cobble together that coalition under the DeSantis umbrella, um, I think people say that's why, you know, it's worth defending Ron DeSantis at all costs because he's the only person who is actually uh, in government and operated in a sort of post-Trump sense, as opposed to, you know, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, or other people who still feel like conventional Republicans. Um, so I understand why, I, I understand why, the, I very much understand the argument for DeSantis. Um, but whether or not, you know, you're able to do that without other people going to Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, or whomever else in high enough numbers, I don't know. I think it's an open question. Well, Tom, you know, uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin uh, was kind of in the news a little bit this week. He used to be considered the most important man in Washington. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe to some of us, he's still as important. Um, he told CBS News uh, last weekend that he wouldn't rule out a presidential bid. Uh, he said, I'm not taking anything off the table. I'm not putting anything on the table. That was like quintessential Joe Manchin statement there. <laughs> and he also he declined to say whether he'd endorse Joe Biden if he runs for re-election. Um, what is he up to? And if he ran as an independent... Does that have any effect on the race? Well, before you answer, Tom, I've got, I want to add one thing to what Andy said. I've got his running mate. His running mate is Larry Hogan. (laughs) So now now I've given you the ticket. (laughs) I don't know uh, (laughs) about Joe Manchin and what his plans are going to be, what what he would end up doing to the race. I suspect, I mean, I guess he could draw from from both parties. I suspect he might actually hurt Democrats more than he would hurt Republicans, but 
Who knows? Unless he carried one state, and that state was well, West Virginia. Yeah, I don't think he's carrying West Virginia if Donald Trump's on the ballot for sure. Trump won that state by sixty points or something. I mean, one of the reasons he's doing this, obviously, I think, it was thirty nine points. But go ahead, <laughs> nearly <laughs> tomato, tomato, whatever. Uh, look, one of the reasons he's doing this, I think, and floating this idea is he's he's got a real fight on his hands. He may not, unless he decides to switch parties, he may not be a senator um, in the very near future. So. We'll have to we'll have to see about that. I do think, Tom. That's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because he's already been the president, de facto president. <laughs> he likes, he likes the job. Right. <laughs> DeSantis is interesting. I think he is running. I think he's given off all the signs that he's running. If he if he ends up not running, it's going to be one of the great head fakes in political history. And he he is selling an awful lot of books. I saw the story. It's he's outselling everybody. So. Maybe that's what this is all about. And he's and he's really deep down knows that he's not going to challenge Trump. It is going to be fascinating to see him if he does get in the ring with Trump, who, you know, Meatball Ron, Tiny D. I mean, what do you, you know, like it's going to come at him in a serious way. And we'll see. He's trying to run this, you know, campaign that's he's trying to stay above the fray and focus on issues and focus on his record. And and that all sounds good until you get in the ring with Donald Trump and he he, you know, hits you in the gut four or five times and you're doubled over. And it's like, no, he and, needs and, you in the groin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bites your ear. I mean, he's just does nasty stuff to you. And you know, people say, you got to hit back. You got to hit back. And next thing you know, you're, you know, Marco Rubio talking about the size of his hands and it goes terribly, terribly wrong. So <laughs> I'll see what, you know, I'm interested to see whether DeSantis, if he does get in, other people are going to get in. But as I've said before, it doesn't matter how many people get in. It matters how many people get out and when they get out, how quickly they get out. Um, if, if they can consolidate behind Ron DeSantis as an alternative to Trump before the first voting takes place, then, you know, you, you have a, a real situation where Donald Trump could lose the nomination. And then, and then that might even be the, you know, the bigger question is, you know, if that actually happens, what does Trump do with his 30%, as Emily mentioned, does he go be an independent say, I'm taking my ball and going home or, you know, cause it doesn't seem likely that he's going to turn around and be like, Okay, everybody line up and go vote for Meatball Ron for the good of the party. You know, he he won fair and square. And, you know, it's just like, who thinks that's going to happen? It's not going to happen. You mean what a normal person yeah, would do? I mean, yeah. he's, he's not necessarily in it for the good of the party. I, I do think, you know, Trump sort of got his mojo working at CPAC. I mean, in terms of proposing some new things, right? This sort of futuristic vision, which I thought was interesting. And he also is doubling down on this idea of, of, Listen, this is a battle for the soul of the country. I'm the guy. You can't have anybody else because I'm the guy who has to get this done. I will be your retribution. I will be your voice. Um, and and I'm the only one who can get this done. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that how that plays. He's galvanizing his 30%. And then he's just daring right. anybody like, okay, go, go get more votes than me. And um, we'll see if Ron DeSantis can do that or not. So Carl, it does seem to me that the likelihood of a third a candidate running this time around is higher than it's been because, as Tom points out, if Trump doesn't get the nomination, he probably runs as an independent. I do think that if Trump gets the nomination, it opens the door for someone like Joe Manchin or someone else who says, you know, I'm going to try to run that sort of moderate lane there between Trump and Biden. And so what does history tell us? I mean, is there is there a role for a third party uh, candidate here? And I'd just love to see that debate. I want to see Three people on that platform. Look, that's some complicated stuff, what you've said. But but what history tells us is that for one political party to, to 
come to arise. Another one has to die. That's what history tells us. What common sense tells us is that in America in the 21st century, we can get 34 different smartphones, but we only have two political parties and it's kind of goofy and people are sick of it. Um, but both political parties have erected tremendous barriers to even getting on the ballot, let alone getting in the debate as a, in the presidential commission debates. Trump could do it as a third party candidate. Manchin might be able to do it. You've got to have a threshold. But look, the American people don't want Joe Biden against Donald Trump. Now, I, I'm not I'm not just saying that because I don't want that. <laughs> but you don't. <laughs> I don't. But only 37% of Democrats want Biden to run for re-election. 37% of Democrats want incumbent Democratic president to run for re-election. The number um, has only pointed out all the, we're ta- we keep talking about Trump's base, 30%. That's impressive. But that means 70% of the Republicans would, would rather something else happen. Um, if you don't get a, if you, if you end up, the United States of America has a general election in 2024 between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and we don't get a third party out of that, we're never going to have one <laughs> because that's the perfect, as Tom would say, shit storm. <laughs> I would just say perfect storm. <laughs> that's the election nobody wants. What, what, what Americans would like, they'd like Ron DeSantis and, you know, Who? Gavin right. Newsom and, a, and an attractive third party candidate. That's what that's what that's what they'd like, uh, independent candidate. But if the two political parties are so you know sort of hamstrung by their their rules that you get Trump and uh, Biden, I th- it's hard to see that maybe the third party would come in the next election. But that will not be an election that will make America happy. Well, Emily, uh, I'm going to give you the last word on this podcast today. And- how do you see it? I mean, is there a third party uh, possibility here? And if so, um, what does it look like? And does it matter? Well, I think Tom put his finger on it. There, there absolutely is um, an imminent, serious one. And it's from Donald Trump. Um, it's almost inconceivable that should he lose the nomination, he takes his ball and goes home. Um, Donald Trump would probably be the most formidable third party candidate uh, the country has seen in years. And again, his support with the Republican electorate, maybe yeah, around that 30% number. His support with the American electorate, when juxtaposed with two other candidates, He's not going to get the same like 70 million vote number um, that he's gotten in the past because he's benefited from that juxtaposition in the case of Hillary Clinton against someone who has a very easy avatar for the problems of America's political establishment um, at a sort of populist moment. And the same thing can be said of Joe Biden, although Biden, you know, succeeded where Hillary Clinton didn't for some other reasons. But I, I mean, I don't know that. Donald Trump is able to win a third party bid. I'm, I'm sure he knows that's a pretty open question, but it, it's very, very, very possible. First of all, it's possible Donald Trump loses the Republican nomination. And then it's very possible if that happens, he runs as a third party candidate. I don't see there being an Andrew Yang type uh, person who runs on a, a third party candidate. He ran for the Democratic nomination last time, but I think soured on the party. Um, do I think people would love that? I think people have an appetite, not just for three political parties, um, but, you know, even more. Um, I, I absolutely think that exists. I just don't see anybody uh, translating that into a serious campaign other than Donald Trump right now. Well, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank all of you. I want to thank Emily Jashinsky, Carl Cannon, Tom Babbitt. 
We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast, come back often. You can keep up with what we're doing here at the podcast by signing up for the free RCB Takeaway newsletter from Real Clear Politics. And you can also subscribe to Carl Cannon's Morning Note, which provides a great history lesson in your inbox. Occasionally he talks about third parties, which is something that uh, I'm interested in. As ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or a publication with whom you disagree. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walton.